This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today on Dreamland, we're going to have someone on the show who is more than a living legend. Uh, he is one of the most important voices in this community because what he has brought to it uh, in my new book, Them, I make a point of talking about his work and uh, what he has brought. Uh, I'm, we're going to be talking to Robert Salas. I'm sure you he needs no introduction for most of you. Uh, he's a retired United States Air Force officer. He witnessed a UAP event firsthand at a uh, an air base. We're going to be talking about that. Uh, I think it, I mean, a missile base, I think it's an extremely significant event. But more than that, Robert is a close encounter witness as well. As like so many of the military people we talk to on this show, um, I always say to them, you know, if you're looking at the visitors, they're going to be looking back at you. And that certainly happened. Um, so, Robert, welcome to Dreamland. I'm very happy to have you on the show at last. <laughs> Great to be on your show, Whitley. Um, it's been a long time, but uh, I think we've known each other for a while. And uh, oh, well, that's the trouble with being our age; we've always known each other for a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, now you have put UAPs in the nuclear puzzle. Is a is a redoing of the book? Uh, uh, how does that work? Yeah. Well. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I guess last year my publisher proposed that we revise the book that I've got published uh, called Unidentified the UFO Phenomenon. Uh, right. Publisher. And uh, uh, well, because so much time had gone by, I had, I wrote that in uh, actually 2011 for the first time on, um, I think I self-published that one, but. Um, oh, I see. So we wanted to do an update to bring everybody up back up to speed and, and uh, uh, renew interest in the main topics of, of this book. Um, and those are uh, extreme government secrecy over the phenomenon, uh, number one. And then uh, uh, what the incident meant to me is regards to um, the warning of uh, the threat of nuclear war. Uh, you know, it's um, it's it's a it it, it is a, the two subjects that abductees and close encounter witnesses most often mention are warnings about environmental issues and warnings about nuclear war, and uh, of course those are the two key survival issues of mankind. Those are the two things that can do us in, and this these are also the two things that. Uh, I call them the visitors because I'm not really sure where they're from. I mean, and they come and go in your life. I mean, they're here all the time, obviously, but they come and go in our lives. So I'm never absolutely certain uh, what what I'm uh, dealing with. Anyway, I'd just like to say Leslie Kane, another dear friend of this show, uh, made a wonderful comment about it, about the new book. UAPs in the nuclear puzzle will help inform the public and move us forward on our journey toward a new understanding of history, UAP, and our own true nature with respect to the larger reality that is revealing itself to us. And that's kind of going to be the theme we're going to work on. I want to start uh, 
by just going over, and I know I, I have talked about my communion experience thousands of times. <laughs> and so now it's your turn to go back to, <laughs> to Malmstrom and, and tell us what happened again, um, if you don't mind. And uh, I'm not no, going to ask um, for a lot of detail because uh, I know my listeners and viewers probably know most of this story, but hearing it from the horse's mouth is important. You bet. No, I'm happy to do it. I, I fully understand that um, there are some viewers that may not even have heard of this story. and um, That's right, especially because this show has a lot of much younger viewers. It's a surprisingly young show. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, I think it's a good time to do it. Okay, well... Uh, in uh, 1967, I was a missile launch officer. Uh, uh, basically, I was in, I was in the Air Force, of course, and uh, assigned to Malmstrom Air Force Base, Montana, um, which at the time had um, approximately 150 nuclear weapons uh, that could be launched almost instantly uh, in the form of the Minuteman One uh, missile system. It was uh, it was a um, uh, solid fuel uh, intercontinental ballistic missile, three stages, um, but it could be launched uh, just about anywhere in the world at the time. And uh, so on this particular evening, uh, uh, March the uh, 24th, 1967, I was I was the man in charge because my commander had taken a rest break. We had a little cut down on underground. We were about 60 feet underground in a what we called a hardened capsule, meaning it should have withstood a, a nuclear blast overhead. Of course, that had never been really tested as far as I know. But uh, so I get a, a, a call from my topside guard. Uh, uh, we had about six security guards upstairs and he calls sometime in the evening and says sir we've been seeing some strange lights in the sky uh, flying overhead uh, they're uh, flying very fast doing strange maneuvers stopping on a dime reversing course uh, these are the uh, approximately war uh, words that he used uh, reversing course and making no engine noise, um, sometimes hovering above us. Uh, but then um, he said they were not airplanes. They couldn't be airplanes because of uh, what he described. Um, uh, so I, uh, I even joked, you mean like UFOs? Because we had seen uh, reports in the local newspaper about uh, People in the area sighting these lights in the sky. And um, of course, we hadn't received any official statements from the Air Force when we were debriefed prior to going out on alert. We would get a briefing about what was going on in the field, uh, any modifications, programs, or anything like that, or status. Um, but none of that was reported to us about UFOs. So, I just kind of joked with him and he, he said, sir, uh, but he was dead serious. He said, sir, <laughs> these are uh, simply not aircraft. And I just wanted to report it. 
And so I thanked him for the report, uh, basically hung up. And uh, and then about five or 10 minutes, I'm, I'm not sure, later, he calls back. And this time he's screaming into the phone. He's shouting. He's yelling. He's uh, unintelligible. Uh, <laughs> And he says, sir, uh, when I finally calmed him down, he said, sir, there's a, a glowing red-orange light hovering just above the front gate. The uh, front gate was uh, about 12 feet off the, uh, high. And uh, it was about, oh, I'd guess maybe 30 feet from uh, his location, what was inside the uh, uh, launch control facility building. And he wanted me to tell him what to do. Um, I know he had the guards out. He said, I've got all the guards. Their weapons are drawn. Uh, I think he was kind of hoping I'd say go ahead and shoot at the damn thing. But uh, I hesitated a little because I, I didn't know what he was talking about, really. I, it just never occurred to me that something like this would happen. And all he was describing was a reddish-orange light that was pulsating at times. No sound, no noise. Um, but the men were, he was obviously frightened, and the men were frightened, of course. And But they confronted this object. And uh, basically, I told him, you know, do what you have to do to ensure that nothing in, uh, enters the facility, the launch control facility, which was the above uh, above ground facility that we had fenced in. Um, and then he said, okay, I have to go, sir. One of my guards got injured. Uh, he hung up the phone. Uh, I, for some reason, immediately looked over at our status board and, um, wondered, uh, you know, in my mind, if something or someone was going to try to, um, shut down our weapons. I don't know why I had that thought, but, uh, <laughs> uh, that's what I was thinking at the time. Now, they had no controls over the weapons system upstairs. We had all the controls downstairs, so there's no way they would have, uh, they, uh, I'm talking about my guards or anyone else, could have uh, instituted some kind of a prank uh, to shut down our weapons. Uh, uh, there was no control. Upstairs. That would have been a fairly illegal prank, too, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's jail time. <laughs> um, so the um, next thing is uh, I went over and woke up my commander, Fred Mywald, uh, Colonel Mywald, retired, uh, now deceased. But uh, I woke him up. He was taking a nap. And uh, I started to tell him about the phone calls. And then all of a sudden, we get the these horns go off, bells and whistles and horns when uh, something happens to any of the missiles under our control, we, we get this loud uh, alarm. Um, so we both look at the status board and sure enough, one of our missiles went down and then very shortly thereafter, every single one of the missiles uh, went down. By down, I mean they were unlaunchable. They were disabled. Um, while this object was still up topside, so we go through our procedures uh, and check our, uh, we have uh, something called the, the Versa system. It's a voice recorded uh, 
activated system that tells us what the problem might be. And we, we're reading a guidance and control system failure on each of the missiles. We also had a couple of um, incursion lights, meaning um, at two of the launch facilities. These launch facilities were located about a mile or so away from this facility, which we call the Launch Control Center. Um, and uh, two of those facilities had light indications that something or someone had tried to uh, enter that facility again illegally. Um, so I called upstairs. I wanted to find out what's going on with this orange red light. And uh, he, he said it just flew off. Uh, the guard, there was a minor cut on his hand, um, but they decided to send him back to the base uh, to get some stitches, I think, uh, for the hand. And uh, uh, but it was it was relatively minor. It was not caused by this object. It was caused by some um, something that the guard did, either with his weapon or possibly tried to climb the fence. Yeah, they're probably pretty excited. Uh, probably pretty, uh, yeah, they were. They were they darn right, they were. <laughs> um, and that, um, okay, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, um, we sent the guards out there to these two facilities where we had indicator lights of a possible incursion in those facilities. And they saw these objects again uh, hovering above those facilities. Um, so, uh, we ordered the guards back and they came back again, very frightened. And, uh, uh, then we went ahead of course and, uh, called the command post. Uh, my commander called the command post at Malstrom Air Force Base, which is about a hundred miles from our location. And, uh, they told us they were going to send out maintenance crews and get those birds back on, on alert if they could so at this point um, nobody knew uh, what the true cause was or anything uh, um, but anyway that was the status when we got relieved the next morning we got relieved went upstairs talked to the guard again uh, even though he was um, i think he was already told not to speak to me um, uh, by his superiors but I finally got him to uh, talk, and uh, he said basically the same thing. This object was hovering silently above the front gate. It was, and this was, when was it, 1968, I believe? 67. 67. At a time when, of course, people knew about UFOs, but it wouldn't necessarily have been the first thing that came to mind. I mean, it was just a strange light. That's right. Yeah. I was there in 1980, working or doing research for a book called Black Magic, and I was taken down into one of the facilities, uh, the command facilities, and shown the the works and everything. And uh, when I was uh, taken to the missile themselves, it turned out that the 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 uh, 
there were some kind of a problem with the targeting and they, they, one of the missiles, there were people down in there working on one of the missiles that's nose cone was all opened up and so forth. And uh, I've always wondered if, does that happen? Did that happen after any other times? Did you know of? Uh, not words? that I know of. Uh, I was there for three years and nothing like that ever happened except that one time. Because you, you would you would never have been told again. I mean, it, it, I, I'm sure if it happened again, it's probably That's not right. on your watch, and therefore no need to know. That's right. In fact, uh, when my commander uh, finished his call with a command post at Malmstrom, he he turned to me and said, uh, "They told me the same thing happened at another flight of missiles," and I thought it was that evening, but it, as it turns out. That was the Echo Flight incident. I was at Oscar Flight. Yeah. Uh, two different locations. Um, but I've confirmed uh, in, in speaking with the commanders out there at Echo Flight uh, on March 16th and through FOIA documentation uh, that the same, generally the same thing happened to them. UFOs over the facilities, on, in this case, the launch facilities, shut down all 10 of their missiles. And that happened March 16th, 1967. That was just eight days prior to ours. And, and we crews were never notified of that. We were never told that that happened. And, yeah, well, I, you know, the military, when it's dealing with something it doesn't understand, it's going to be pretty closed mouth generally mm -hmm. especially when it has something to do with a, a weapon system as sensitive and important as the one you were assigned to right now now this is part of a pattern of yes. interest in nuclear facilities and materials it goes way back to i think the first thing that could be related to this might be this trinity event that uh, Dr. Jacques Vallée and uh, Paola Harris wrote a book about recently. Are you familiar with that book at all? Yeah, I think uh, that story, uh, which supposedly happened in 1945. Right. Uh, actually, I spoke with one of the so-called witnesses, Remy Baca. Um, there, there were two young boys supposedly encountered this um, crashed object, uh, went inside in, in the evening uh, hours and uh, pulled out some kind of a piece of hardware, and et cetera. Uh, I think that has been uh, debunked at this point. I, I certainly did not believe Baca when I talked to him. I spoke to him directly. Um, I interviewed him uh, at his home. He showed me the, this piece of hardware and and of course, I had some experience with aircraft. Um, I worked for FAA for over 20 years as a uh, structures engineer. And so I'd seen a lot of aircraft parts. And this to me uh, was simply uh, some kind of a casting uh, and probably a, uh, from some aircraft. Uh, it had nothing exotic about it at all so 
Uh, I don't know if you talked to Valet or uh, Paula lately, but um, it is my understanding that uh, now this story has is fallen from favor as far as, as far as the truth goes. Let's say. Right. Well, that does tend to happen in this field. It's uh, yeah. fraught with with problems like that. Uh, and that what happens in the end is you, you never really will know because of the phenomenon's ability to distort memory and cause people to say and do things that yeah. that it wants them to say and do and yeah. uh, to obscure its uh, presence yeah. in this manner. So, However, uh, no, uh, I, I would add that in, in 1945 and in 1944, twice as far as I can tell, uh, aircraft were scrambled over... Uh, Hanford nuclear facility. Hanford was yeah. processing plutonium at that time for the first atomic bombs. That's right. And there were numerous, which was the one where they were processing nuclear materials for medical purposes. It wasn't Hanford. Uh, there was another one that it had also... Oak Ridge, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah maybe it was Oak Ridge that, that there were incursions there too. Uh, overflights yes. and strange events. Mm -hmm. It's like somebody has been pointing at nuclear weapons and nuclear materials. And, or, or are they trying to, it's just very hard to determine. Oh, wait a minute. As usual, folks, you will be there. All my listeners are always and viewers happy to know that I forget the breaks. And I forgot the break, so we're going to do it right now. Uh, we'll be right back. We're talking to Robert Salas, uh, former USAF captain, nuclear missile crew commander. His book, UAPs and the Nuclear Puzzle, Visitations, National Security, and the Need for Transparency which is something of an understatement considering that we have had no transparency for 80 years and still don't. I mean, now it's, this has ended up in the hands of something, uh, an, uh, a new acronym, ARROW, A-A-R-O, which even uh, you, if you, it is not for real, it's another cover up. And why is it all these cover ups, Robert? Do you have any sense of, what it is that the Defense Department is working so hard to hide? Uh, well, if we speak from the aspect of nuclear weapons, um, I know that um, our defense is largely uh, our defense against uh, our enemies, let's say, uh, real and perceived, uh, has largely to do with nuclear deterrence. And we can talk about the fallacy of nuclear deterrence, as far as I'm concerned, that um, all it has done is created more nuclear powers and nuclear nations and uh, caused, uh, uh, you know, a race to see who can build the most bombs, uh, a very expensive race, by the way, and uh, put us in further danger. I think it's increased the risk of having nuclear war this policy of nuclear deterrence, or another way to say it is mutually assured destruction. 
Well, that's, of course, that was true in the Cold War when there were basically three nuclear powers, the United States, Britain, and uh, 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 Russia. Yes. Now we have a situation where China is building out its nuclear presence at a tremendously rapid rate. Russia is still on the scene. Pakistan and India. Yes. Uh, Iran is working hard to build a nuclear arsenal. Uh, Israel's got a nuclear arsenal. There may or may not be nuclear weapons in South Africa. There's all kinds of places. Uh, well, don't forget North Korea. And, and North Korea, even, you know, all of these wonderfully stable, reliable states where you can count on the leadership to make sensible decisions. Yeah. They've got nuclear yeah. weapons. We're in and, danger. Uh, and India and Pakistan are currently at war over the uh, Kashmir district right. of Pakistan. And like you say, they're both nuclear powers. Um, so, and, and Pakistan has, uh, there have been indications they've been infiltrated by uh, radical elements of uh, Islamic jihad. Uh, they're, yeah, the, the, their, their nuclear arsenal is vulnerable to uh, it, infiltration like that. It, so it's That's a correct. very, very unstable situation. That's correct. It is. Continues now, to be. Yeah. I'd like to get into your own experiences because I have talked to many military people on this show over the years. And the reason most of them end up on the show is two reasons. I mean, the reason you basically end up on a lot of shows is your experience with the, at, at Malmstrom and the, your, the, your deep thinking about the significance of the nuclear threat and uh, what's being communicated to us. But then again, this is a show about close encounters mostly and uh, the spiritual aspects of that. And you have had a close encounter, at least one. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, 1985, uh, I was a civilian, actually working for uh, FAA at the time. And uh, we had a house in uh, Manhattan Beach, California. Uh, I remember the exact house in 85. Uh, and that's how I remember the date uh of um of this incident because uh of the location of the bedrooms etc and uh i was trying to get closer and closer to the seashore <laughs> so i would buy up uh, old homes in manhattan and uh refurbish them and then resell them uh, in order to uh, make a profit and buy another piece of property and get a little closer to the beach. That was my goal. <laughs> so I remember the house we were in, in uh, when this uh, happened uh, and the year I owned the house, 1985. Uh, sometime during the evening, and we had two small children in the house, of course, our children, uh, uh, son and daughter, and uh, uh, sometime in the evening, I woke up for some reason and saw a blue light coming from our living room. And we had no blue light in the living room. Uh, 
um, I woke my wife up and asked her if she could confirm that I was looking at a, some kind of a blue light, and she confirmed it. I told her I was going to have to get up and check it out. Uh, there may be somebody in the house, so I did. I tried to get up, and as I tried to get up, I found myself paralyzed. I couldn't move. I just, and I remember the struggle I went through to get my uh, mobility. And I, I remember trying to move my legs, move my arms. <laughs> I struggled as hard as I could, and I couldn't. Move. You, you must have thought you were having a stroke or something. I, I, I can't imagine what was going through your mind. Well, I was frightened. Uh, I, I. I had a possible burglar in the house right. and I couldn't move. And right. I even shouted out to my wife and, and now she was unconscious, believe it or not. She just went back to sleep, I guess. But uh, no, she, she didn't. didn't. No, listen, she I'm, I'm too familiar with this. She was knocked. She was turned off. Okay. That happened to my wife many times. Okay. So at any rate, the next thing I recall was some kind of being or person in the doorway of our bedroom, and it had a hood on. Uh, now, it could be from the shock of looking at this person, but I don't have a memory, a clear memory of what this person looked like. Of course, it was dark, it was still dark. Yeah bedroom well it's it's also uh you you know now at this point you're dealing with somebody who can immobilize you you one can assume they can probably also control what you remember about what you see yeah. so we can assume that's a possibility anyway absolutely uh and this added to my fear uh, so i was still struggling to get my ability back and uh, I was still frightened for our family, of course. And uh, then the next thing that I recall is uh, there being some, what I would describe as small children in the room. That's I the know way. those children all too well. I can assure you they're not children. <laughs> Go ahead. And But that's the way it's, they struck me. I, again, um, don't have a clear memory of what they look like, only that. Uh, I felt that they were children uh, because of their size. And, right. um, and then after that, uh, they seemed to be uh, uh, making me uh, elevate or rise off the bed. And uh, they were below me now and kind of, uh, moving me towards this window in our bedroom. It was uh, one of these double-hung windows. Uh, and uh, it was locked. I remember locking it as I was going towards this window. And I uh, was thinking, uh, you know, they may not be able to open this window. <laughs> so as it turns out, uh, they didn't need to open the window. They I went right through the window. I know that sounds ridiculous. No, it doesn't. Not to me. I've done it. I've had the experience. So no, not at all. 
and that's what happened. Uh, I went right through the window. Uh, now I was in my backyard outside. I remember a bright white light. And um, then the next thing I recall is um, being on a table or a, you know, a metal table and being shown a long needle uh, type of instrument. It was, uh, it looked like a needle to me, but they put, they put the, this needle right in front of my eyes and then communicated with me. Um, and this was a, a, I refer to him as a tall being, uh, much taller than the others. And, um, put this needle right in front of my eyes and communicated to me they were going to insert this needle in my groin area uh, and that it wouldn't hurt. Well, when they started to do this, it hurt like hell. I mean, it was Yeah, I've very, had that experience too. They very, tell you it's very, not going to hurt, but that's not true. It was very extremely painful. I, I remember that pain. You know, I think uh, anyone who's experienced pain can tell you some of the worst pain they've ever felt and uh, and that was it uh, and I communicated that of course immediately and uh, and then the pain, pain went away almost instantly it just disappeared it was gone. Know, I think they use hypnosis I, and I don't think you you can remember the induction I think that's I think they hypnotized you into forgetting the pain they blocked it with the hypnotic suggestion but go ahead could be uh and uh, after that uh procedure was over uh, they sat me up on the side of the table they had two of those small beings next to me and they were floating they were not sitting or standing and then uh they floated me off the table and sat me on a, what I would say is a kind of a molded seat into the side of the craft. It was, uh, um, I sat there for a while and they were like sentries. They were on either side of me. Um, and then they got me up and uh, took me over to another cubicle in the craft. And, uh, there was another being there uh, and I, I recall he had a white smock on, but you know, maybe I made that up in my mind. There's no way to tell. <laughs> way there's to tell. absolutely no way to tell how these memories actually work or what they are memories of, but we can only report our best recollections and hope that we're in the right direction. Yeah. Now what I'm telling you is all as a result of, uh, uh, hypnotic regression I've had with um, three different people. Mm -hmm. uh, at any rate, this this guy in a white smock turns me around uh, and just pokes two fingers down my back like this, uh, right down my spine. That's all he did. He just poked his fingers down my spine. Um, and that was it. They turned me back around. The, the two escorts uh, guided me along a, uh, a curved um, hallway. And um, at some point, I saw a white flash, and I was back in my bed. 
And the next morning, of course, I didn't remember any of this. My wife didn't remember any of this. It was not until about, um, I want to say 2008. So that would have been, what, 23 years later. Uh, we were in Ireland and listening to a uh, an experiencer who started her talk with telling us about being in her bedroom and uh a bluish light kind of engulfed her in, the, in, in this blue light in her bedroom. And uh, at that point, bingo, I turned to my wife who was sitting next to me and said, do you happen to remember a blue light in our bedroom? And she said, yes. And, uh, and so that was the first time we talked about it. And it was that evening I... 23 years later, the first yeah, time. Yeah, 23 years later. So they are, our friends are nothing if not careful. They made <laughs> sure there was plenty of distance between you and them, didn't they? Yeah, they sure yeah. did. So it happened that Mary Rodwell, you, you probably know Mary. Sure, Rodwell, I know Mary. I uh, happened to be there. Um, and I talked to her and I said, Could you do a regression on me tonight? And she did. So that very evening, uh, I had my first regression and tried to recover some of these memories. The um, the question, of course, of hypnosis is always a difficult one as to how it actually works and what what it, it whether or not we're constructing a narrative or uh, or actually have remembering things. But the, you're fortunate in that you do have another witness to this light and your wife. Yes. And it, so this, on some level, this happened. And oh, I, absolutely. I, that, uh, I, I, three, three things that convinced me that this was not a dream was, of course, my wife recalling the blue light in the bedroom. Yeah. Number one. And then number two, the, uh, the way I struggled to retain, uh, to try to get back my mobility, uh, yeah, uh, paralyzed, and then uh, number three, the extreme pain of that uh, incident. After the incident, was there additional? Did you the next day, for example, did you still feel uh, pain in the groin area? You know, I just don't remember uh, anything about that incident the next day. Uh, I just don't recall anything about that next day. I just asked because it was pain that caused me to remember my incident in the first place. Uh, uh -huh. I was, uh, uh, I had a, a rectal injury and, and it was painful. And uh, the pain became very noticeable over the next few days. And that was when the fragmentary memories began to come back. And I, of course, in my life in 1985, when my experience also happened, I had no notion of any of this stuff. I hadn't thought about flying saucers since I was a little boy. And <laughs> I thought I'd gone mad. I, I thought I'd lost my mind. Yeah. And in fact, the, the injury was the only thing that made me think that I had been assaulted. But initially, my doctor and I thought I was the victim of a crime. Yeah. You know, I mean, a, a regular crime of some kind. Right. Now, do you think, are you aware of any other incidents in your life that may have uh, been connected with this, especially in 
even in childhood? Well, uh, two possibilities. Uh, when I was, I, I, and this I recall directly, uh, when I was a child, um, uh, a small child, still in my crib. Uh, and again, I know it's hard to believe, but I, I recall. Not hard to believe on this show. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I recall standing up in my crib and, uh, and wondering out loud, what am I doing here again? Uh, um, I, I remember having those thoughts and I remember, you know, the physical act of standing up in my crib. Um, also, I'll tell you a story my mother used to tell uh, a lot during holiday uh, dinners and things like that. Uh, of course, my mother's deceased now, but uh, she used to tell this story often. And uh, the story goes like this. When she was a, a child, about 12 years old, I think, uh, she lived in Chandler, Arizona. Um, and one night she remembers uh, having a sleepover with some cousins and her sisters. So she had at least three or four sisters uh, with her and uh, a couple of cousins. And and, uh, and one evening, uh, that first evening, um, sometime in the middle of the night, uh, everybody woke up and saw this woman in the hall in the doorway, uh, a white woman. Um, now, my, my mother is Hispanic, uh, uh, and uh, and so were all her friends and uh, sisters, of course. And This was a white woman that was not a neighbor that anybody could recognize. It. Nobody recognized her, but she was a, the so-called tall white with a long white gown. And she turns to my mother and smiles at her and then leaves. That's all that happened that first night. Second night. She recalls uh, being woken in the middle of the night and uh, by a midget, as she described, a midget <laughs> whispering in her ear, some strange language in her ear that she couldn't understand, but he was whispering in her ear. She wakes up and shouts out. All the other girls wake up. They see this midget scamper away or leave quickly. And, uh, and that was that. So, but for some reason, my mother, Love to tell that story. When I tried to talk to her about the possibility these might have been uh, alien visitations, uh, she discounted that completely. She was a very devout uh, Catholic and uh, uh, didn't believe in such things. And so, uh, yeah. uh, but, you know, it could very well relate to, uh, to me. Uh, what is your, your ethnic background? Um, Mexican American, on both sides, both sides, yeah, yeah. I have um, a bit of Canary Islander in my background, but I'm I'm curious. Is there any? Uh, is it is it all Hispanic, or are there, is there any any? Do you know if there's any Indian? Uh, yeah, I've got some. Uh, let's see. <laughs> yeah, I did do that twenty three and Me thing or something like that. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I do have some Islander in me also, um, uh, Spanish, of course. And then, uh, 
uh, let's see, Irish, a little bit Irish, and um, uh, I think that's about it. Yeah. Well, the when we did, uh, we had the communion book out. We got lots and lots of letters, and uh, we also had something called the communion uh, newsletter. And when you looked at the list of people who took the communion newsletter, there were an awful lot of Irish names and uh, and, uh, and it's, it's Scottish Irish names. And of course, the fairy folk are uh, that that all of that material comes from that starts in that part of the world. So who knows what it's about? Uh, but certainly one thing is quite true, quite clear, that no matter what in the larger sense it's about, one thing it is about is us. It's about us. And, you know, I wonder if you, if you were chosen to have the experience at, at Malmstrom precisely because you would end up going out and talking about it. And I, I want to know what your motivation was, your original motivation, and when did you first decide to talk about this? Okay, so one of the things that happened the day after my incident, uh, I'm talking about the Maelstrom incident now, is I got a phone call from these security guards that had actually seen this object. And they begged me to come and see them and talk to them, you know, because obviously this was, um, you know, you, you can imagine whatever religions they were, this might have impacted their worldview about uh, God and religion and oh, sure. else, uh, seeing this bright light um, uh, very magically hover and uh, shut down our missiles. Um, so they were begging me to come out and see him. But by then I had signed a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, if I had been caught uh, speaking to them um, about this incident, I could have spent a lot of time in jail. Basically. Yeah. No. Uh, we, we're going to take a little bit of a break. We're going to unpack the non-disclosure agreement after the break. We'll be right back. We're talking to Robert Salas, his new book, UAPs and the Nuclear Puzzle, Visitations, National Security, and the Need for Transparency. So before we left the air, Robert, we were getting ready to talk about the non-disclosure agreement. Uh, and I think it's, let's, let's get into that a little bit. At what point were you asked to sign an NDA? Well, when we were relieved the next morning after our incident, we were relieved by another crew. Um, they had a helicopter waiting for us to fly us back to the base. Um, and we were ordered to go and report to our squadron commander immediately, and we did. Now, was it usual for you to have a helicopter take you back to uh, the base? Most of the time we drove out there. That time, I can't recall I, whether we drove or were helicoptered out, but this time 
they certainly had a helicopter waiting for us as we exited the, the security building and uh, and they wanted to make sure they flew us back um, right away so uh, yeah we got back uh, to the base at Malmstrom uh, walked into our squadron commander's office who by the way was an old B-17 World War II pilot um, uh, tough as nails uh, and he was white as a sheet. I remember his face. <laughs> he was white as a sheet, especially when I asked him, what the heck was that all about? Uh, was it some kind of an Air Force exercise, uh, something we didn't know about, et cetera? And uh, he said, absolutely not. Uh, I didn't know anything about this either. Uh, but then uh, there was also a man from AFOSI, Air Force Office of Special Investigations, in the office, he walked up to us and said, sign here. Uh, I said, what's this? We, he said, this incident is now highly classified and you are never to talk to anybody about it. And that's what this document says. And if you do, uh, you'll spend many years in Leavenworth prison. And it actually listed Leavenworth prison, which is the federal prison. Um, and first I complained because we already had above top secret clearances. And uh, uh, we, if we were told uh, something was, you know, highly secretive, we, of course we wouldn't talk about it. Um, uh, but he says, that doesn't matter now. You, uh, I want you to sign this document. So basically we were forced to sign a uh, uh, non-disclosure agreement, uh, which as I said, uh, required us not to ever uh, emphasize that word ever uh, speak about this publicly or to anyone, to anyone really, not our spouses, uh, not anyone in the Air Force, nobody. So we signed. And uh, you're here. And I'm here blabbing about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, why? Wh what made you make the decision to do that? And why didn't you end up in Leavenworth? Okay, well, um, in 1994, I picked up a book at a bookstore called Above Top Secret by Timothy Good. Right. And up to that point, I haven't, I didn't speak to anyone about this. Uh, um, and in that book, uh, and I've still got it, uh, if you turn to page 301 of that book, it talks about an incident involving UFOs shutting down missiles at Malmstrom and it actually says 1966. And then again in 1967. Um, so I, I got pretty excited when I read that because I thought, you know, the air force might have just de declassified the incident. And so I went to move on. The first thing I did was uh, because I saw this little paragraph, just a short paragraph the book uh i told my wife when i got home and uh her friend happened to be with her and, and knew about um, mufon so i contacted mufon later and in order to see if i could get a a foia request a freedom of information act request going on this incident that happened as outlined in this book mm -hmm. but 
not to say anything about UFOs. Uh, I think I was smart enough not to do that. Uh, and so we did. We, we followed a FOIA request with the Air Force. The Air Force wrote back, said this was classified incident, still classified. And this was the echo flight incident. Uh, so they decided to go ahead and declassify because it had been over 12 years. There was some kind of a limitation on, on that. So they declassified the echo incident and uh, started sending us documents. And so that was the basis of the first book that James Klotz and I wrote together. James Klotz was my investigator from MUFON that helped facilitate these FOIA requests. And uh, as soon as the Air Force started sending me documents, of course, I thought this was the incident I was involved in. Um, uh, which was an incorrect, turned out to be an incorrect assumption. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I, I went ahead because I, I and went public. I went on the Art Bell Show in, uh, I think, November of 96. Um, I did a sightings show. I don't know if you remember the show Sightings. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, I did a show uh, on Sightings, went public, and I actually gave an interview to the Great Falls Tribune um, in 96. So I went public based on the th idea that this was my incident. But as I did more research and started talking to other people, trying to uh, locate my commander, I realized that I was not at Echo Flight. I was at Oscar <laughs> Flight. So your NDA still applied. And my NDA still applied as it does to this day. So uh, to this day, I'm in violation of that NDA. However, have you had any blowback at all about that? No blowback at all. None. I was never warned or told by the Air Force or anyone else that... Uh, I should not be talking about this. In fact, I have now given a, my testimony to Arrow. Yeah. Uh, and it's an official record. I've got it in writing that it's an official historical record uh, in their files. You know, it, they would have, in that they just classified the other incident, they'd have a hard time prosecuting you. Uh, because in and maintaining that yeah one incident was fine to declassify but not his incident which was similar and 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 he's not said anything other than uh right other than so they that would be a hard case that they'd lose that case probably and they probably know that that's what i'm counting on <laughs> yeah. now is there and i'm not i'm not going to ask you to reveal anything but are there things in your memory that you do not talk about because you think that they still are classified and that you would be in some difficulty if you disclose them yes there's certainly uh, aspects of my job as a missile launch officer that Right. If I revealed, uh, you know, some details uh, that are classified, I, uh, I would, I could certainly be prosecuted for that. Uh, 
uh, and I haven't. Uh, the, you know, the, the yeah. parts of our job, parts of the job I had, uh, are sensitive and um, and should not be declared. Uh, should not be revealed by me or anyone else. And when I was down in that missile command center, they had the areas of the various control systems had to be covered with black uh, cloth so that I could even go in there. So, and you know, so it's still a very sensitive. Yeah, absolutely. You're talking gonna, about do you, do you know anything about any Russian experiences that are similar to this? Uh, yes. Uh, well, wait, wait a minute. I'm just noticing that we've come to the end of the first hour. So, Let's talk about this in the second half hour, in the in in the final half hour, the Russian stuff, and also I want to get a little bit into your into you as a person, your your if you have religious beliefs and so forth, and trying to figure out what would make them because it seems to me pretty clear that you were chosen. It's not an accident that it was your flight that that this happened to and uh then they come back into your life later on try to figure out if they were in your life earlier and we'll we'll have a lot of fun anyway free dreamlanders thank you so much for being with us as always and uh we'll see you next week and i hope i see you subscribe to the show i know what and because uh, you you could keep us going a lot longer okay Okay, well, we're talking to Robert Salas, his new book, UAPs and the Nuclear Puzzle, well worth your time. Obviously, a man who over time has not only had extraordinary experience, but gained a great deal of wisdom as well. Is that we've heard a lot of very wise things said today and uh, highly intelligent and, and an ideal pick by our visitors for doing what he's doing. Okay, now... We were going to start by talking a little bit about Russia and the Russian experiences insofar as you're aware of it. So can you... Well, there was an incident in 1982 uh, in Ukraine. Uh, uh, you know, Ukraine used to be a nuclear power and they had nuclear missiles at the time. Um, yeah, this whole war wouldn't have happened if they hadn't given them up. Yeah. Never be a Mr. Nice Guy in international affairs. That's rule one. Go ahead. Uh, so I'm not sure exactly the date, uh, but it was in 1982. This object comes over uh, a missile site, uh, a Russian missile site, and actually starts the missile on a countdown for launch. Right. Uh, that's This is what's been reported. Um, uh and then, uh, so the missile starts this countdown, and of course, before it's launched, the, again, the missile shuts down again, uh, much to the relief of the crew. Of course, this could have resulted in World War III because uh, many of these missiles were uh, targeting the United States, so uh, certainly could have... Uh, started a world war a nuclear war again uh, this is another what i call a message from our visitors of uh, 
the extreme danger of nuclear war that we're we're living with, uh, especially uh, you know even today. Uh, I guess that's all I can tell you. There, that your uh, audience should be able to find more details about this. Yeah, they dismantled the command facility completely. That that uh, this where this had happened because there was a period of time where they couldn't stop it and it was it's mm -hmm. counting down on its own and they just tore it down basically bit by bit and and did something else they didn't because they couldn't identify why it had happened mm -hmm. and it's as if somebody is warning us right. and you know i have to ask you a question that it seems clear that they are interested in our survival but that, because, I mean, you're warning us about nuclear weapons, you're warning us about environmental stuff, which is the primary uh, uh, warning that the close encounter witnesses get. So now you'd think, well, that's good. They're on our side. But are they really? And what is your sense of them? Uh, in other words, you know, if, if we had a herd of cattle, we would be very concerned if that herd of cattle was doing things that was dangerous to it, but we wouldn't necessarily be their friends. <laughs> and uh, so where do you, what is your sense of this presence? You've had them in your life and, and, and it had one of the most important experiences in the whole phenomenon at the, at, 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 at uh, Malmstrom. Well, I've got two thoughts about that question. Um, uh, one, I do think that they are concerned about um, us humans, not, and not just us humans, but all living things on this planet. I think they consider this planet a jewel, which is true. Uh, we have so much diversity of life. Um, and... Um, that's number one. Number two, uh, it's very possible that they uh, are master geneticists and could have uh, helped start life on this planet um, many, many millions of years ago. Um, and uh, I, I wanted to ask you a question. Um, sure. Whitley, if you don't mind. Uh, Not at all. A while back, you were on um, a show with Linda Moulton Howe, I believe. That's possible, certainly. <laughs> and during that show, uh, somebody wrote in uh, um, and put a post up on Reddit. And uh, I've got a copy of it right here. Uh, and this anonymous, uh, this was posted July 5th of this year and he he talks about having access to uh, uh either uh he, what he calls exobiospheric organisms EVA. yeah i've read that i'm i'm very familiar with that okay so you are familiar with it and he came to the conclusion that uh, uh some of these beings are engineered genetically engineered well, they, and, they certainly would be. Yeah. I mean, we're going to be genetically engineered 
<laughs> very few years. Yeah. Um, and uh, we're going to genetically engineer ourselves out of various diseases and into better functionality. And over time, it's probable that we're going to enhance our selves in all kinds of different ways, including mm -hmm. uh, brain computer interface and alterations in the way the brain function is and so forth. Yeah, I've had, uh, I'm very familiar with that. And do you have a specific question about yeah, that? So my uh, point, I guess, is uh, they are master geneticists. Uh, if they, and uh, that they are involved in some sort of uh, production of, um, of uh, hybrids. Yeah, I would think so. Uh, I mean, I've come to that conclusion that they, that's part of what they're doing is they are, and part of the reason they're taking us in, in these experiences is uh, uh, taking genetic material and producing hybrid. Well, you know, they they uh, inserted a needle into your right into your uh, testes and uh, extracted semen from me. And they've extracted mm -hmm. eggs and semen routinely from many men and women. Right. So, yeah, of course they are. Yeah. And I, I've met people who I think are the sure. products of these, these experiments. So uh, if that's true, uh, you know, they have a, a big investment in us, us humans. Uh, and they don't, they don't want to see us destroyed. They don't want to see our planet destroyed, you know, our, let me ask you this. Do you think that they might intervene if we started to have a nuclear conflict? Do you think they would prevent it? I don't know. I have no idea. But it's clear uh, they could. They could, I suppose. Uh, they know how to disable our missiles, of course. Um, and I'm sure they have ways uh, of disabling um, others. But uh, it would only be a, a wild conjecture on my part. I, I, I don't know because there, there is um, an argument either way, right? Number one, uh, let these stupid humans have their nuclear war and see how much destruction it can do so they can would never have another nuclear war, get rid of all their nuclear weapons. Well, of course, a nuclear, a nuclear weapon exploding leaves long-term unlivability in the area where it explodes. Right. Exactly. And that, that might be an overriding reason to prevent it from happening. And that's that it right. doesn't even have anything directly to do with us, but just the, the loss of the, uh, of, of the planet might be an overriding concern of theirs. It might be. Um, <clears throat> uh, however, uh, we don't exactly know what their thoughts are, how they, how they think. We certainly don't. And what we do know about their brain biology is that their, their brains are very structured very differently from our own. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, if you, if you, I've, I've read many books on brain function. I'm very, very interested in brain function and how memories are formed and things like that and how they can be altered. And um, uh, I think that if you have a different brain, 
you also have a different perception of the world. And we don't know what their perception of the world is like, or if they have altered themselves to mm. and, and changed the way they perceive the world, perhaps enhanced it and increased the number and, and type of of uh, of uh, perceptual inputs that they can they can detect. Like yeah. you know, we, we have visible light, but what if they've change themselves to where they can detect more different types of light or even thoughts and God knows what they might have been able to do. Yeah. Uh, returning to this post by this anonymous. Yeah, go ahead. If you go to the last page of that, it talks about um, what their belief system is with regard to the soul. Um. That gets pretty deep. Uh, I don't know how this man might have uncovered this information, uh, but um, he thought it was important to include that in this. He he has a he has definitely got a a line into. He's got definite, I think, true knowledge of the biology of these of some of the beings that have been whose bodies have been studied. Uh, as to the material about the soul, um, I'm less sure that that's whether that's coming from his mind or from something he actually knows in an objective sense about their vision of the of the world. Uh, I I do know that they are intensely interested in the soul, and when that being was touching your spine, he was actually examining the connection between your second and first bodies which is connected they're connected along the spine the second body is like an elect a, 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 an electromagnetic duplicate of the first body and that's the when people talk about out-of-body experiences that's what's happening is the second body is is coming out the second body absorbs the uh the all of the information that's being come coming in through the first body, all of the impressions, and it, it, when you after the first body expires, the second body is rich with all of the impressions of life, and it's quite possible that that second body is something that somebody who has maybe doesn't have the same relationship to time and doesn't have that kind of rich richness of experience might want. So it might be that uh, this is a barnyard. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, that may be another reason they would like to save us or have us save ourselves is because of what our souls represent to them. Uh, yes. Uh, our souls might represent a body of knowledge. Uh, that they value uh, somehow. I, I, my impression of them is that they, they, they consider us very precious. Yes. And that they're very angry that we don't have the same attitude about ourselves that they have about us. They consider us more precious than we do. Uh, I, I agree with that. I agree with that idea. I don't know if you read a book uh, by Susie Hansen. Do you know Susie Hansen? Um, no, the name does not ring a bell. She's a New Zealander, but uh, she's an experiencer. 
And she wrote a book called The Dual Soul Connection. Uh, the Dual Soul Connection. I would highly recommend that book. Um, and in it, she talks about actually meeting what would be her son. When she was 12 years old, she met the soul of her son of the future on a craft and directed to uh, or asked to play with this. Uh, it was a, just a blue ball of light, um, but it represented the soul of, of the son that she would have later in life, which she has, by the way. You know, I have to interview her. I'm going to get that book and get get that going for sure. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, I, I would but recommend you, it. Yeah. So you 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 have the have you ever had an out of body experience? Uh, not that I recall. Uh, you mentioned if I've had any other experiences. I've I've had dreams that seemed um, real, and after the dreams that I remember, I would write down on my journal, um, basically a dream journal. And um, some of those were a little uh, related to what we're talking about. I remember seeing this very glassy black eye, very close to my head. And uh, somehow it reading my mind, that sort of thing. So, I, like I said, I may have had other experiences. I just don't recall them. That's that's part of the drama of being face to face with the ones with the big black eyes. You, you, you. We think of eyes as being something that you use to look at the world, but that's not how those eyes work. Those eyes are reading the soul, and you can feel it when you're connected. As soon as they connect with you, you feel, oh my God, what is going on here? And the reason is that. They may have a, 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 a sufficiently complex perceptual array to tell where they are and not, not be blundering around. I'm yeah. sure they do, but they can also, they're reading you. Right. And that's the part that we have, a, we have trouble remembering. Yeah. We don't want to read ourselves. Well, we're scared. In some ways, we're afraid of finding out who we really are, aren't we? Well, aren't we, though? And uh, are, are we perhaps here trying to escape from ourselves? And these are beings or our families trying to get us to return to... You know, I had an experience many years ago when... This was in the late 80s, I guess, 89 or 90, around there. I was lying in bed about 11 o'clock. My wife was asleep beside me. And suddenly this sort of unformed kind of being ca came rushing into the room, the cabin in upstate New York, and toward the bed. And I had an, a completely instinctive reaction. I grabbed the bedside table, leaped up, and hurled it at this being with all my might, yelling, you'll never get me, you'll never get me. And uh, it ended up in my brother's house in Texas a few minutes later. And he did the same thing. He threw a guitar at it. <laughs> and he was left with the, the, the thought that uh, we basically we needed to calm down. 
<laughs> and uh, you know, we're fighting this, Robert, in our souls. We're fighting it very hard, deeply. That's where the all of the secrecy right. that you've encountered and that the world is struggling with right now uh, comes from the fact that we're fighting this. And I don't know really why. I don't think any of us finally do. But I wonder if you don't have some kind of an impression as a as a as an experiencer in a a person in a very unusual place in life. What is your impression? Why would we be fighting this? Well, let's say we were connected closely connected to these visitors we're very connected yeah and uh, by connection you know physically and maybe as uh, spiritually or uh, and maybe uh, again, familial because there's a lot sharing of the same soul uh material right. i don't know <laughs> are we are they're part of our we're part of their families yeah there's a lot of family stuff in the whole yeah. close encounter experience well, what's so fearful from this close connection is accepting it. Uh, you see, we have established uh, this scenario of what life ought to be um, and what who our family is and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, and this goes against a lot of beliefs we've already established. So it's a frightening thing, I guess. Well, yeah, because it's it's as if we have a secret that we've been keeping from ourselves, right? And right. Uh, and you know, you're a really really good choice. They're very smart about the people they choose to do what, because you've got a lot of wisdom and uh, and a willingness to to go out in the public and and you made a crucially important mistake, which was that you thought that your experience had been declassified. And I just wonder how much they had to do with that mistake. I, I We can't answer that, well, but I bet they had something to do with it. Yeah. Uh, there have been a lot of so-called coincidences in my life related to this that uh, uh, I find it hard to believe now that these were coincidences, that this was some kind of a, a planned uh, thing, my being involved uh, publicly and uh, of course, the incident that happened, uh, this was all planned, uh, pre-planned. Um, I, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, there's so many. Uh, we could talk for hours about the. Tell us a few. All right. Uh, one is um, I was uh, stationed at Malmstrom, had to finish my master's degree in engineering. I could have done it there, but the Air Force insisted on my going to uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, obviously the home of Blue Book in 1969 yeah. still. Um, and so I was assigned there where I met my wife who helped me and it was uh, it was a, a coincidence because at the same time the Air Force was trying to recruit me into what I would call the cabal the secret cabal 
And this is what they do with many witnesses. They try to somehow um, read the men. And so they'll be uh, tied up in, in uh, secrecy. Uh, yeah, I've, I've been lives. there and, and, and not done that. <laughs> Go ahead. I know what you're talking about, though. So uh, was it a coincidence that I met my future wife there? Um, uh, and it was because I had proposed to her just before they tried to recruit me. Uh, I turned down that opportunity, really, to uh, be not an opportunity now, but uh, I see that now. But it could have been an opportunity for me to get read into the program and got more information about what they really knew. No, I, I've, I've, I've always thought that it's a dangerous thing to keep this secret because uh, I'm not sure whether they control the secrecy or don't want it. And if they don't want it, then hiding these things is going to affect your soul and, and not in good ways. So, you, you know, I always worry. I have friends who are deeply involved in the hiding of this stuff. I mean, I don't know what they hide, but because uh, I'm not read in on anything and I don't want to be. Uh, but I I've had this discussion more than once, of, you know, why are you, are you sure you're doing right? Because like Art Exxon, General Exxon and uh, Colonel Marcel, toward the end of both of their lives, they began to feel very guilty about what they were hiding and had been hiding. And they came, they, they made public statements basically to assuage their consciences. And um, some of these guys that are, it's, it's a huge program. There's thousands of people involved. Not Absolutely. just in, no. yeah, not just in the in the in the uh, well. You just look at the command control structure of Air Materiel Command, where sure. a lot of this is, and it's huge. It's far larger than it should be. Oh. Absolutely, and that's because it's all about this. Yes, and I've written about this. Uh, I call it the UFO cabal. Right, exactly. It is a a real international organization that, like you say, has a lot of tentacles uh, to it. And uh, uh, it's it's major. It's very big. It's huge. Um, yeah, it is huge. And, you know, I can't believe it's not controlled by the visitors because, you know, they they, they would be so intensely interested in it. Uh, and yet, it, do you have any sense that there may be conflict among them? That they're, they're not a, a cohesive presence but that there's parts of them that have some idea one idea and parts another idea about what this should all be about oh yeah i'm i'm sure they do uh, i don't think they've got all the answers if we're talking about the cabal right no no i'm talking about the visitors themselves well the visitors themselves they're conflicted on uh, I, I i wonder I'm, I'm not saying i think they are i'm just wondering if you have any sense of because we're conflicted i mean we've got this huge organization that is hiding an entirely different world worldview and a whole different experience of living. It's that big and it's mm -hmm. hiding it. Right. And, uh, uh, uh and I, yet, I, I don't think, I don't think the visitors are conflicted at all. I think they know exactly what they're doing. Um, 
And yes, I think they are in some sort of way controlling uh, what the cabal is doing or trying to do. And um, um, again, it's a subject of conjecture and beliefs, I guess. <laughs> but uh, I got to yeah. believe the, uh, the visitors know exactly what they're doing. Well, I, I think they probably do. And uh, uh, I I trust that they do because somebody had better know what they're doing because we're getting, we're going down a very, very rocky road here right now yes. in, in this world with the environmental crisis and the military thing ramping up in so many different ways. I'm just sitting here waiting on tenor hooks for a big terror attack in the United States or in Britain. Um, and uh, now we have trouble in the, the a divided Congress that uh, wakes us look terribly weak. Uh, it's a real problem. We got real problems. And the weaker the United States looks, the da more dangerous the world becomes. Yes, I absolutely agree with that. And uh, that's why I, I really try to emphasize the fact that this risk of nuclear war is very real. Um, oh, yeah. I, I don't. I, I sometimes believe, or I, I do believe, that uh, these terror groups could, in fact, be planning ways of either producing a, a dirty bomb and, uh, you know, exploding it in some major city. Uh, by dirty, I mean radioactive, obviously. Right. Well, the, the you know, there's been so much radioactive material uh, lost in yeah. in, in uh, especially in Russia, and we don't know now how much has right. been lost because the cooperative agreement between Russia and the United States ended with Putin. And, yes, new start, new start treaty, and, and we don't know what he's done with a lot of that material. It could be anywhere. That's right. Robert, also, any nation that is has uh, nuclear power plants is producing. Um, uh material radioactive material that could be enriched to bomb grade material yeah or or, or could be used in a dirty bomb in other words right. a, a non-nuclear bomb that's uh filled with radioactive material and spreads that's it all correct. over a big city that's correct it's yeah. very frightening well on that happy note <laughs> <laughs> UAPs and the new nuclear puzzle by Robert Salas do definitely get this. Uh, it, it is, as you can see, uh, quite an extraordinary experience. The book inspired this whole conversation after all. And so there's much to be learned there. And Robert Salas, oh, uh, uh, I'm interested to, well, I'll talk to you about this off the air, but we have a, uh, uh, chat with our subscribers every once in a while. I would love for you to come on it if you want to. So sure. Oh, good. Sure. Well, subscribers, then I'll let you know when he's going to be on and it'll be fun. We'll have a wonderful time together. I'm sure. Robert, thank you so much for being with us on dreamland. Thank you so much, Whitley. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, you've been one of my heroes for a long time. Oh, thank you. Well, it's the mutual admiration society. You've been one of mine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and now that I find I find out that you accidentally went against your NDA, I'm I'm very impressed. <laughs> okay, thank you very okay. much. Thank you.
You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.